Welcome to the First Time Podcast. I'm your host, Tad. If this is your first time listening to First Time Podcast, let me explain. It's really, really, really simple. Either me, the guest, or both of us experience something for the first time, and we talk about it. And I've been on a very long run of movies. It's 99% movies on this show, but I've done a few food and different things, but um, no surprise, I'm, I'm here with another movie. And... I'm finally having a good friend of mine. He's a actor, a writer, producer, director. He does it all. Welcome, Wes Worthing, to the show. Hey, Tad. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's it's exciting to think that after all of these years, we get to have a lengthy conversation rather than having just say hi in passing because you're so busy operating a festival well yeah that and 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 you're always busy if i'm not like if i'm not busy you're busy either showing one of your films at a different festival or it's just we're we're two busy guys but it seems like on this podcast it's like i've met a lot of people through the film festivals um and through that world and it's like i'm always amazed by the breed of people i meet through there like like i said um on your intro you do it all like you're an actor producer director, writer, um, you know, people have probably seen you. If you're listening to this, you've probably seen Wes on, on your TV and didn't even know it if you don't know him. Um, <laughs> but you're one of the guys that like, and I don't want to just make this whole podcast about this, but it's like, seriously, I've never heard a bad word about you. Um, anytime I bring up your name, people are like, mm-hmm. Wes is the best. <laughs> like everybody has, uh, so much love for you because you're just one of those uh, filmmakers that supports everybody and what they do. And um, I just want to get that out of the gate that like we all love you so much and, and just treasure you like you're the you're the kind of person that makes doing a, a nonprofit film festival worth it. Well, thank you. That's that's wonderful to hear. I appreciate that very much. And If you want to make the entire podcast about that, go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, I recently it was at uh, Midwest Monster Fest, and again at Halloween Palooza, ran into yeah. you because you actually made a horror short. Which I was like, when I saw you at Midwest Monster Fest, I mean, obviously I saw your your name on the list, but I was like, oh shit, like a short that I haven't seen by Wes. I, I had to make sure to check that out, and um, it's really fun. Devil in the details. Uh, tell tell the audience a little bit about this short because this is sort of the one that's on the sure. festival circuit right now, right? Right. Uh, it's uh, I, I just just uh, to experiment with it. I send it out to a few festivals, and it's played at the what, Midwest. Uh, uh, yeah, it played at the Midwest Monster Fest, and then uh, last weekend at Halloween Palooza in Atumwa. And uh, right now, it's not at any festival to be played again because that was it's kind of a test run. And but I will be sending it out again because I had I've been having so much fun with it already. And, um, yeah, that was, I, I, I get, I keep calling it an experimental film basically because much of it is improvised and I guess on a whim in, in a way, um, I, uh, made a trip to Cleveland earlier this year and it was for a different film project and, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Stephen Luke. And he had a, a Operation Seawolf with uh, Dolph Lundgren and Frank Grillo. And I had an opportunity to fly out there and be a part of the film. And I've never played a Nazi before. I had a chance to be a Nazi. and <laughs> uh, so, But so was Dolph Lundgren. I was saying, such a typecast for you. I mean, everybody, you know, like I, I just got done <laughs> saying how nice you are. And now they cast you as a Nazi. I know, right? Right. <laughs> and... Uh, 
So, it, and, and uh, it was not a, well, initially not a speaking role, but when I was at the hotel in Cleveland, just the night before I got uh, uh, more of the script and they did decide for a group of actors to sing a, uh, a World War I uh, German anthem of some kind. So we didn't have to learn it overnight. Uh, we practiced the next day, and uh, there was a lot of mouthing to the song, but still a really cool experience. And uh, uh, yeah, really excited about that project. But uh, getting back to your question, the uh, with Devil in the Details, I had some downtime at the hotel, and I, I I've always wanted to do this idea, but I did, I've never really fleshed it out. I thought it would be fun to have a character who was very cynical and didn't believe in ghosts and demons and would be that person on a ghost hunt who would be the most annoying because they would be explaining the science and logic behind everything that's being heard. And that would be me in real life. It might be me in real life as well, <laughs> as far as that goes. And uh, uh, But I thought it would be fun to at least turn that into a character and then have it not go the way he had planned and where something horrible happens to him. But I was really limited with my uh, uh, resources. Again, uh, it was just basically what I was able to find around me or around the neighborhood. And uh, the there's a part of it, you've, you've watched the film now where yep. I use beet juice as blood. Well, it just so happened, that was never planned. That was just a coincidence where next to the hotel, there was a and an organic food and drink place. And I just happened to buy that uh, beet juice. It looked good. And I had a little <laughs> bit of it. And I thought, this looks like blood. I better do something with it. And so, um, so yeah, it was, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. But I, again, uh, not a, there's no camera movements because it was just, I, I shot it 100% on my cell phone. And so I had to just lock it down and do whatever I could. And, uh, yeah, and just ex experiment, and uh, it was a lot of fun to do. And it's more of a mystery than a horror, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, it was, and, and then it was just a matter of once I returned to Iowa, uh, getting into the editing booth. And uh, honestly, I'm 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 of the frame of mind of of Todd Phillips that uh, he was quoted as saying that filmmaking is the price we pay to get to the editing room. I principal photography to me. Yeah, other people love it, and I love aspects of it, but I would much rather build the world in the writing and build the world in editing. And so then it was just a matter of putting sound to it. And there's a part of it where there's supposed to be heavy footsteps at the end, and that was me with uh, two 30-pound weights, dropping them lightly onto my carpet to get like <laughs> do you uh, have, I was going to say, do you, ha yeah. do you have any neighbors below you? Uh, I, I do now, yeah, but that was actually shot uh, uh, in my home before I sell, sold my home. So yeah, okay. it, it, yeah, no, no neighbors at that time when I was <laughs> making lots of noise. Um, and then, uh, uh, oh, and then, and the growling sound was actually uh, my uh, one of my sons had a dog, and he uh, just playfully uh, with, with the, one of those toy dog like what, what do you call it the uh, ropes okay. that they chew on. You play tug of war with them. And it just, you know, purposely, he was helping me out, uh, getting some good growl sounds from the dog. And, uh, and again, just playfully, but then I manipulated it in post and 
had that deep guttural supposedly demonic sound and so i love love messing with sound whether it's uh, i love i prefer practical but i sometimes uh have to resort to using digital sound well i have now i have even more questions like i probably should have just um asked them during the <laughs> q a but i have you on here now so you obviously had this idea you were and you were shooting this um you know feature and did you go in like knowing like okay if i have downtime i'm going to shoot this or was it like i have 10 minutes i'm sitting here hey i should shoot that thing that's been sitting Um, on my brain no i was thinking uh ahead of time you know uh i wanted to keep a a little bit of a video uh library or uh a video journal of my trip out to cleveland to do this and uh, so i already had a few uh, airport shots and shots outside the window etc and no, I was hoping for a down day. You know, I what I did was I checked out the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because it's Cleveland. You got to do that. Right. And uh, and the the house where they shot Christmas Story was actually closed for renovation. So I didn't have a chance to go check that out. But that wasn't far away. And so I thought, hey, I, I'm hoping for a down day so I can really dig deep into I, I just on my dad's side of the family there. There's Hummingbird. And so I I. Uh, don't sit still very well so i got to keep moving and decided to yeah make that film (laughs) well i think the way the the limitations you just talked about is what makes it believable because it's uh you know you could call it found footage because you know that's sort of the genre but that's you know if you were actually doing this in real life and filming yourself and making this video blog um you would not have multiple cameras you would not you know you would be shooting it yourself it's it's like right you were experiencing it like you li- like literally would be so it's it feels genuine i think that's why it's effective like if you would have had um people setting up cameras or multiple cameras or you know better lighting mm-hmm. or anything it would not feel real and that's what what i think is one of its strong suits and um like i said it's it's amazing because I've seen you, you know, not only acting. I mean, that was how I first knew you is, is as an actor. But um, over the years, I've got to see you sort of blossom and become a writer and a, and a director now. Um, and, and I you already answered one of my questions earlier when you said that you like writing the best. Um, but why why do you prefer writing over the directing or, or producing? Like you said, writing and editing. Oh, um, you know, I think it's just. Uh... You know, I, I, at a very young age, I, uh, I mean, this way before internet, uh, I, I wasn't necessarily a bookworm, but by the, my later high school years, junior, senior year, I started then to, well, I always loved, I guess I, I well, I guess I always loved reading. Even as a seven-year-old, I got into my dad's library and his library covered uh, uh, floor to ceiling, wall to wall, although I, 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 Kid you not, I've, I've not, not once did I ever see him sit down and read a book. <laughs> he loved to collect books, mm-hmm. and I loved getting into his books. So I was reading, uh, there's one called 21 Great Stories, and it had uh, oh, uh, Ray Bradbury and oh, uh, yeah. John Steinbeck and, and uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, and I was, as a, a seven-year-old, starting to explore and reading it. I didn't really understand everything, but then revisiting that book over the years, I started to appreciate why these stories were stories were so great, and um, so I guess I, I. But later on, I pictured myself also being a mystery writer. I was a huge uh, Agatha Christie fan, and I started to write my own novel about 
a retired Scotland Yard uh, a detective with a, a little bit of a dark past, and he wants respite and a break, and he's coming to the United States, meets a New York City uh, arrogant journalist, and then they, they're like the two main characters. It was horrendous, <laughs> and, um, but the entire time I was writing it, and I never completed it, uh, but I, I just kept, I guess, you know how artists like to fantasize about someday in their future they would be famous? Oh, yeah. I was I was doing that as, but I wasn't thinking about being a novelist. I always pictured myself, uh, I guess, being more excited about the film that my book was adapted into by someone else. And then I just one day thought, well, maybe I should just write the movie since that's exciting me more than anything else. And then I thought, well, I, 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 I imagine I'm the only person in the entire state of Iowa who's even thinking about writing a movie script. I don't live in L.A. or New York or anywhere, you know, big cities. And I went to the public library in Ames and found two books on screenwriting. And then it was just off to the races. It just I knew that that format and the brevity that's important in telling a story and what, what the camera can catch it was just my way of telling a story. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, going back to the short you were just talking about, Devil in the Details, it's probably like your loosest. I mean, as did you even have a, a, a script for that or was that mostly improvised on the spot? For a few of the scenes, I grabbed a piece of paper and just jotted down different notes and different lines that I thought would work. Uh, but then otherwise it was basically just setting up the camera and doing multiple takes until, until I was satisfied with uh, my performance in uh, yeah each individual scene. Yeah. So the writing was sort of done in the editing room where you were taking those, those shots and putting together what you thought, like, here's this scene works best with this one. And it's, was that sort of the, more the process on that one? Right. And in, in fact, uh, the very first uh, edit of that film, I, uh, sent it to my good friend Wendy Went, and she uh, gave me her thoughts on it, which is why she gets a special thanks in the credit. And uh, yeah, convinced me to, to actually shorten it. The, the, one of the end scenes where I'm taking on the role, uh, role-playing a character uh, whose son was uh, actually committed suicide in the room, that was actually much longer. And, uh, yeah, and, and ju- it, just, it was just too long. And so we decided to, yeah, make that brief, just get the point across. And uh, because the last thing I wanted to do is make it like, uh, oh, I didn't want it to, it, we were talking about the delicate uh, situation of suicide, but I didn't want to make it a mockery. I wanted to, you know, just know that this is just, this is this, the cynical filmmaker character who's just trying to get into uh, a frame of mind to prove his point that demons don't exist. And yeah, so, uh, but yeah, definitely when I got back, it was setting the tone and yeah, getting the editing, the sounds that I love playing with. Now, Friday night at Halloween of Palooza, there was a sort of panel and screening of a new short series called Poltergeist. I don't know if you, you were there Friday night, right? Yeah, I missed Friday. I got there Saturday. Yeah. Well, this was this was very interesting to me because um, 
it's similar, but on a whole different, like it's almost apples and oranges, but the idea is similar in that these two guys, they're playing, they're trying to make it big and, and find like get a TV show. So basically they're, they're Americans pretending that they're British and that they're ghost hunters. So they go, <laughs> they go into these abandoned buildings and they pretend that stuff's haunted. But while they're there, the, the real shit goes down and it scares the hell out of yeah. them. And they end up with this really cool show because they're, they're actually terrified and they're catching it on camera. Um, so they, <laughs> so they get this hit show on accident and um, it, it's a comedy. It's, it's not at all serious. Like, you know, these, these uh-huh. fumbling idiots fall into a real haunting, which is um, funny, but it was like, I couldn't help but think of yours. I'm like, yours is a, is a serious take on it. And theirs is a humorous take. I love that they're very in tone mm. like very different tone very but it's like you guys are sort of tackling a similar story but i was just like th- this is a cool like um juxtaposition like i love these two ends of it two, two different takes on a similar thing that's um uh, and they're so very different like i said theirs is 100 percent humorous yours is uh-huh. uh is dark it's very serious and and I, I when like i said when i saw that you had a film at, at um midwest monster fest i'm like Wes and the horror. Okay. But that didn't surprise me because it's like, you've done everything like every genre. I, I mean, it's not the first horror you've been in, but I think this is the first uh, sort of horror mystery that you've, you've actually uh, directed yourself. But um, I have to ask, how is Dolph Lundgren? Is he cool as in person as he is on, on screen? Oh, I, I thought he was way cool. And um, I'm just going to let you know that while you're telling that story, I wrote, I was writing down what you're, I want to check out Poltergeist. I, I know that's going to be something I'm going to want to want to watch. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't, um, I didn't go up to him and talk to him or introduce myself. I wanted to give him his space and, you know, be cool and everything. But, um, <laughs> okay, I do have a funny story to tell. And I think I, I think it's okay for me to tell this. It's, it, I'm not, it has nothing to do with, well, basically nothing to do with the story or anything. I say no one listens um, to this anyways. Go ahead. You can, <laughs> <laughs> you can edit this out if it if you think there's issue. Um, I had to take the the ageist walk of shame on set, and I was totally cool with it. Uh, but uh, I, what I was really impressed with Dolph is that he, you could tell he wanted to get the best out of out of the scenes he was in, and uh, really work with uh, uh, Stephen and. Uh, there was a scene that uh, it's the scene that I'm in, right? It's a long row of Nazis, and I'm one of them. And the script says they're all young, like in their twenties. And I was going, "Why am I here?" <laughs> but I'm glad to be here. You're, I'm happy you're, to be you're here. flattered, yeah. Like oh, I'm wow. flattered, but um, <laughs> might be an issue. But uh, and Dolph noticed that too, though. He noticed that the you know decent uh, number of people in line, the actors, were not in their twenties. And so he just respectfully, and again, he's a way cool guy, just started suggesting certain actors move down the line. So, and, and I, I'm going, I'm absolutely going to get picked out of this group if you go down the line. And he and I shared about three or four glances together. And, I, and I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, maybe I should just volunteer myself to go. And um, instead, uh, I, I, but I was happy that I was the last old person he picked <laughs> to go. So I'm thinking maybe I'm somewhere on the bubble. I kind of look young. Maybe I'm, you know, so I was okay with that. But by doing that, it actually put me closer to Frank Grillo, who was in the shot. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe that was a benefit of some guy. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Uh, you know, it's it's always cool, you know, to to watch the scene and, and go, hey, that's me. And, and like, you know, 
hey, that's my foot. You know, it says my, that's my shoulder. I'd rather see me, you know, my face. But, um, you know, we'll see how it turns out. But no, I wasn't one bit uh, offended by it. I think he was making the right choice. And yeah, I thought he was way cool. And his, one of his daughters was there too. She seemed really, really uh, genuine and sweet. And yeah, it was a really cool experience. He's, and we won't make this the Dolph Lundgren podcast, but he's like, <laughs> I mean, everybody knows him from Rocky Four. You know, it's like, you know, that's where he sort of got to start. But he's, uh-huh. he's like the smartest action hero. I think he has like a, a like a doctorate or a PhD in like biology, it's microbiology or some chemist or chemistry or something. I don't know. Yeah, some impressive engineering or some sort of degree. Yeah, he's 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 a smart smart fella. For sure. I just always imagine him like in those Rocky scenes where they're doing the montage and like they're doing all the testing on him. He's probably like, that's not how it's done. Sly. Like, <laughs> yeah. this is how it's actually done. He actually was doing testing on himself or something. <laughs> so is that movie available to watch anywhere? You know, I, I think it's still in post-production. OK. And um, yeah, it'll uh, I imagine it'll yeah be eventually uh, eventually available on streaming or theater. Yeah, excellent. It's it's cool to see, like I said, um, Stephen Luke. You know, I met him at SNAF, and he's gone on. To yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. Yeah, a lot, a lot of big things, and and he's included a lot of uh, people he's met through the film festival. So, you know, it's it's really cool just to always see those relationships go on and and create other things and and sort of blossom out and you know. Well, that's right, and that's where I met him. I met him at your festival, and I think at that time it was uh, Dust of War. That that was a feature. Uh, film that played there and I thought this this guy's impressive and what he very ambitious and yeah uh, great guy yeah I remember that one I had Tony Todd and that's what I remember about it yep right right Candyman himself so what do you have uh, coming up are you are you writing or I'm sure you're writing because you're always writing but um, are you are you working on getting something new into production soon yes and no Uh, I am I, I, I'm at a point in my my career and uh, my passions here that, uh, and, and I think every artist has the same feeling, but I guess I'm going to really take a deep dive and serious uh, frame of mind with this. Is I, I do want the next 10 years of my body of work to really dwarf what I've done in the last 10 years and really be picky about what projects I'm involved in and, and want to create. And uh, one thing I'm working on now is more of a personal uh, story that I, I, I don't know if it would be a good movie. And so I'm actually exploring whether it would be a better stage play. And I have a few stage plays under my belt, but they're you know not uh, full-length plays, but a few shorter ones uh, from many years ago before I discovered screenwriting. And... Um, I think it would make a better play. And so what, I, what I've done, and I don't want this to come across as like egotistical or arrogant or anything, but it's uh, I ordered through Amazon the last eight years of stage plays that won a Pulitzer Prize. And I've been reading them. I only have a few left to go. And the, the purpose of that is just to, well, read a great story, read a great stage play, but also at the same time ask what was going on in the world when that was, you know, when that came out in 2011, 2012, and 2013, et cetera, and even last year. And, you know, how, why did it win a Pulitzer? What was so special about it? What was so endearing about the characters or shocking about the story, et cetera? And because I, if I do write a stage play, I want it to be really terrific. And 
uh, effective. And um, whether if I aim high, I think I'm going to still, uh, that gives me opportunity to have something really terrific. And so um, that's where I'm at now with that. Uh, I But at the same time, I haven't made a solid decision on that. I still might set down because prior to that decision, I was actually putting together, uh, outlining a, a horror feature oh. and I might go that route as well. So yeah, my mind's always, I've got all sorts of ideas. I haven't really nailed down which one I want to pursue next. So, well, do you think that, and you like going back and reading these, do you think there is like a science to it or there's a like a formula or a code to crack because I'm into songwriting. Like I'm not a great songwriter myself, but I'm, when I listen to music, I'm more, I, I gravitate towards someone who's good at songwriting rather than actually like a great guitarist or a great, you know, mm. something about that. And, and, um, and, and one of my favorite songwriters is Rivers Cuomo from Weezer. And through the nineties, he was obsessed with cracking the perfect pop song. And he made these binders, of like Oasis, Nirvana, um, Green Day, all the all these all these <laughs> bands that were like in the same sort of um, atmosphere and and like genre as as Weezer was, and he was trying to figure out why they were coming out. Like every album had like one number one hit, and and how how they were doing this, and he he became obsessive with it. It was like you know there has to be a formula. It's not it's not necessarily talent. It's like they figured something out, and and it like almost drove him crazy. Do you think there's something to that as far as like writing screenplays or um, stage plays? I, I can absolutely understand how that might drive him crazy. Uh, and I, and I, a part of me hates to think of that there might be a science or formula to art, but at the same time, I would find it also fascinating if there was. And um, I definitely can't give you a definitive answer with that because I... Um, I, I'm hoping to find some sort of formula. I think I might be looking for that, but I'm also looking more for, um, you know, uh, how the writers were able to get the theme across subtly and uh, how, how their characters spoke. And I, I just think, to me, it always comes back to comes down to character. I think that's. Uh, it, but again, I, I, I yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to keep exploring them because if I, because I, I'll be honest with you that. That is part of it. I'm not to steal their tone or steal their writing voice, but I mean, I still want my own my own voice. I th I think that is really what makes them special. Is because when I'm reading them, I'm hearing this special voice that I did not read in the last one. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I think I have my own voice, but it's a matter of refining it still. And I will until I'm 99. But um, uh, that's the the joy uh, of writing, in my opinion. But if if I find an answer to it, you're going to be the first one I call. Well, I, thank you. Well, I just, <laughs> I, I, just, I find that fascinating myself because like I, you know, I look back and study and it's like there's certain people and, and I honestly, I, you know, I think there's there's only so much to behind that theory. Like, I think, you know, you can have the perfect formula, but if you don't have the talent to apply to that formula, so it's not, you know, one definitive thing where it's like, there's some people that are just born with it. Like, I think, in my opinion, like Brian Wilson's one of the greatest songwriters from the Beach Boys of all time. And it just came naturally mm -hmm. to him. He started doing it when he was like 15, you know, and it's like, even through the, some of the worst things going through his, his childhood into his adult life, the stuff he's been through, 
you know, it just was amazing. Like he never lost that talent for great songwriting where it was like some people can try their hardest their entire life and never come out with a hit song where he's just cranking out hit albums like it's effortless. So to me, it it is something about, you know, obviously it has something to do with the talent and, you know, it's sort of a bummer. Like I've I've played guitar my whole life and I've just never been good at it. And I'm, I accept that there's some people who were born with it, some people who aren't. And I learned early on like okay this probably isn't for me it's more of a hobby it's not going to become something i do for life and that's fine you know but Mm -hmm. um i don't know it it, it fascinates me and that's something i I could dedicate a whole podcast to like (laughs) writing um whether it's movies you know and i find writing fascinating because i was in i did creative writing stuff in college but i was like man this i could never ever sit down and write a screenplay that's like my worst nightmare because i just sit and stare at the screen (laughs) i'm like you know but also I, I can't people have asked me before, you know, why don't you make a film? I'm like, making movies is hard. Like, I don't want to make a movie. Like, I love watching movies. That's the greatest thing about being a festival director. I can sit down and watch I get to watch all your movies. You know, that's what who likes, you know, there's nothing better than watching them. So uh it, it's interesting for me to hear like you you enjoy the editing too, because um I love talking on my podcast and then when I have to edit it. I'm like, man, I, I put it off. I, I dread it. I, I, I've, I figured out ways to make it so that, I, I, you know, I get it right. And in, um, in, while I'm recording it, so I don't have to go back and do too much. And, and I've, I'm, lear- I'm learning after like 60 episodes now um, what not to do finally. So uh, <laughs> but I mean, that's just like filmmaking, too. You know, there's a lot of people who say, you know, do it right the first time. Then you don't have to fix it in post. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I, uh, along with what you're saying, to me, uh, editing and post is very similar to writing. And um, I, I, I'm not a fan of writing, but I love rewriting. And I'm not a fan of getting the editing started, but I love once I have it all in place and then I can manipulate it. And I, to me, it's something about uh, being in kind of a zone. I mean, if I, if I only have 30 minutes to write, chances are I'm not going to get in that zone. But if, if you give me two, three, four hours to write in a row. I mean, I've got, I have blinders on. I, the, my place could be on fire and I wouldn't know it. And it, it would, I just get into this zone and I just, I don't want to go anywhere else or do anything else. And I, uh, uh, I just get lost in it. And I, sometimes with editing, it's the same way. Once I get into a rhythm and, and I really can feel the flow of, of uh, or just the balance and the flow and the rhythm of the editing and the film, and it's coming together with the music and the sounds and Oh yeah, I'm really I I just yeah, it's tedious and sometimes very aggravating, but once I get on a roll, it yeah, it's a great place to be. No, it's like I think that's awesome. Like I have a lot of friends who are writers and they probably impress me the most out of everybody. Like not to say that, you know, directing's easy or any of it's none of it's easy. Like all of it the idea that a film can come to be I don't think the average person realizes how hard it is to make something and get it to completion. And, you know, so I appreciate like everything that's submitted to SNAF every year. I'm just in amazement what people do. But, um, you know, it's not as easy. Like I've had so many people who've never written a, a word, never acted, never done anything. They get inspired by the film festival. And I don't want to, you know, smash your dreams right away. But they're like, man, I want to go make a documentary. And I'm like, <laughs> These people have been doing it, you know, there, there are some first time filmmakers in there, but it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, these pe- there's so many people who've been doing this thing for so long and, you know, they're, they're still struggling and they still, you know, a lot of them hate their own work. And it's like, 
you know, I, I always tell people, you know, they're like, oh man, my, my film didn't win an award. And it's like, man, just having it on the screen is, is winning. Cause you've, you finished it. Like you, you made something from start to finish. It's on screen. It made it here. It played in front of people. To me, that's, that's winning in life. I don't know, but yeah, I, it, it, well, unlike other writing, like a novel and stage plays, uh, there are so many elements that can go wrong in a film. I mean, if the audio is off, you don't have a film. I mean, you might still play at certain festivals, but you know, it's, you're, you're not, it's, it's not going to get you anywhere because you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not perfect or, and there's no such thing as perfect, but it's not great. There's an element off, you know, if, yep. if the acting is subpar, if, if, the, if the music or editing is choppy or jarring, and there's so many elements that can be off with a film because, you know, screenwriting is basically, and I know there's a lot of writers that are going to kick me for saying blueprint, but I, I, I say that loosely. I, I know writing a screenplay is still uh, an art and that should be taken serious and should be, you know, awesome, but it. In, it really is a blueprint. It's going to it's going to change. It's going to evolve into something different uh, by the time it's in the can and by the time it's actually you know rendering in, in the final edit. And uh, something you mentioned earlier, or just a moment ago, it reminded me of a story that I wrote. Uh, it was it's a, a short screenplay that I wrote for the New York City Midnight Madness content competition, and it was actually about a a washed up rock and roll star who tricks a, a young upcoming pop star uh, into his studio. And then it becomes basically a horror where he has kidnapped her and he, they're the only two in the studio and they're going to be there for three or four days. And he basically is, he's kidnapped her for the purpose of, he wants to win a Pulitzer in, in writing, in, in songwriting, like, like, like Bob Dylan and, and uh, other musicians. And, uh, he, uh, yeah. So he's trying to basically force her to write the perfect song. Of course, he's going to steal it and then probably kill her. But um, so there must be something in, inside of me too that that is fascinated about a formula and figuring out, you know, not just the the art side of what we do, but also the science of it. So interesting. Yeah, and that that's a cool idea. Like, was that just a short screenplay that you wrote? You said. It was, yeah, yeah, and that was for. There's a, a competition called New York City Midnight Madness, comp, uh, yeah, competition. Uh, three or four times a year, they'll have something where, um, yeah, they'll. It's very similar to the 48 hour film uh, project where you you'll receive a genre and maybe a line of dialogue or a prop that you have a, only a very short period of time to write, but you're in competition with a lot of other people writing within those, with those same elements. And um, one of my screenplays that was performed at your festival uh, years ago uh, uh, was actually took first place in one of the rounds there. The, uh, you might remember my screenplay that was about a, an office clerk who falls in love with a filing cabinet. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which there are people out there right now who thinks I'm insane for saying that out loud, but it's, it was actually an endearing story about their lives. <laughs> no, I think anyone who listens to my show, you know, I think that they they probably have an open mind because they probably have a weird taste in films and uh, and reading stuff. So I, I would hope so, anyways. And you know, there's probably some new people who are listening just because they know you. But um, if they know you, then that doesn't surprise them either. So. 
yeah, they, they know that I'm, yeah, off kilter. <laughs> no, that, that's what we like, though. That, that was a great, I remember that one. It was great. But I'll have to have you send me the one about the uh, pop star that gets kidnapped, because that sounds really cool. Okay, I will do. Absolutely. So, leaning on that, we're going to go and talk about a movie. We sort of went back and forth on what we'd watch, and you th- I, I have these uh, lists on Letterboxd of movies I've seen that I would love to talk about, and then movies I haven't seen. And um, you had the same reaction everyone else does when I sent them that list. or like, holy crap, how have you not seen <laughs> these movies? Um, I, I should just someday post it on my uh, on the podcast page because I, th- I I talk about it almost every episode, and I think um, people really do not quite understand the scope of this list. That um, you know the the the, the amount and um, the amount of big movies that I haven't seen um, that I haven't gotten around to, but I'm, I'm slowly checking them off because of this I finally saw a Bond film. Um, but <laughs> you actually had an offer I couldn't refuse. You mentioned the, the movie we're going to talk about uh, tonight, and it is Attack the Block. That's an alien, bruv. Believe it. And I landed in the wrong place, though. You get the wrong place. <laughs> Welcome to London, motherfucker. Well, lads, he discovered a species hitherto unknown to science. Believe. Maybe there was a party at the zoo and a monkey fucked a fish. Yo, check it. More. More what? Them things. Lovely fireworks. Commandments, alien invasion. Of course it is. I'm killing them. I'm killing them. Straight. Let's get tooled up, blood. Quite sweet, really, aren't they? Oh, that's different. They ain't in the same thing. That looks triple the size, blood. We need to get off the streets. Back in a block. What kind of alien would invade some shitty council estate in South London? One that's looking for a fight. <laughs> What is that? I'm shitting myself in it, but at the same time, this is sick. I've got one text left. This is too much madness to explain in one text. We have to call the police. You'd be better off calling the Ghostbusters, love. It's mayhem and he's props. What <laughs> who kills us? No one is gonna ever call you mayhem. You keep on acting like such a pussy. We're going to Ron's weed room. That's the safest place in the block. What's Ron's weed room? It's a big room full of weed, and it's Ron's. Okay, Attack the Block was released in the U.S. on July 29th, 2011, written and directed by Joe Cornish, who um, also wrote Ant-Man and the Adventures of Tintin, Um, executive produced by Edgar Wright, cinematography by Tom Towend, who you might know from You Were Never Really Here, 
Um, music by Stephen Price, who also did music for The World's End, Gravity, Fury, Suicide Squad, Baby Driver, Wonder Park, Last Night in Soho. Um, lots of great things. Um, star- starring Jodie Whittaker as Sam. You might recognize her from Doctor Who. Um, she's the current, I believe, the current Doctor. I don't watch, but um, I think I believe she's the first and only female Doctor Who. Um, John Boyega as Moses, who you might recognize from the new Star Wars trilogy and Pacific Rim Uprising, and also Detroit. Um, we have Alex Esmail as Pest, Leon Jones as Jerome, Franz Drame as Dennis, Simon Howard as Biggs, Danielle Vitalis as Tia, Sam Williams as Props, Michael Aos as Mayhem, Luke Tradawa as Bruis, um, Jumaine Hunter as Hi-Hats, Selim Awadzi as Tonks, and last but not least, Nick Frost as Ron. Um, this movie had a budget of approximately $13 million. Gross worldwide was only $6.2, with only like $1.2 in the U.S. Um, but it has a 90% fresh uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So this is one that I absolutely adore. So when you mentioned you hadn't seen it, I thought, well, this is a gamble because um, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't like this movie. And I always need an excuse to rewatch this movie because it's one of my favorites. Um, but I just could not resist letting you watch, like making you watch this one so I could talk about it. Cause I, I feel like I've, um, made all my other friends watch this one. Uh, when it first came out, I was like, Oh, you guys have to see this movie. It's wild. Um, right out of the gate. Yay. Nay. What did you think of it? Oh, definite. Yay. Um, in, uh, in fact, just listening to the trailer, I had a big smile on my face because it's, uh, it's just such a fun film. And, um, I, I had never heard of it before, so I was skeptical <laughs> at first. And, uh, but yeah, it, 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 honestly, it actually reminded me of one of my favorite films uh, made by A24 Studios, and that is uh, How to Talk to Girls at Parties. Okay. H- have you seen that? I haven't. That's one of the few A24s I haven't seen. And I think one oh, of the it, actors from this is in it. Oh, I'm, oh okay. I'm going to have to Cause I thought check that, that out. Popped up. Well, the, both films are set in England. They're both, uh, well, this is uh, uh, members of this block, uh, this gang uh, against aliens, whereas uh, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is a bad title because it's not really what it's about, but uh, is punk rockers against aliens in set in England. And um, it also did not make any money, and it had uh, Elle Fanning and Nicole Kidman in it. And I, I thought it was just a blast, and it reminded me very much of, yeah, of that. Okay, it was um, Jumaine Hunter who played Hi Hats is also in. Uh, okay. He's in both. Okay. He's the drug okay. dealer. Hi Hats. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So no, uh, absolute, absolute yay on this film. It was I again. I didn't know anything about it going into it. Unfortunately, when I just as I was about ready to hit the play button, I did notice a word. The word alien, I thought, oh, I don't, I didn't want to know what it was about aliens. <laughs> I just, but, but thankfully that reveal, they get that reveal out of the way really fast. So yeah, they waste I didn't no have time. to sit. Yeah. I didn't have to sit through 30 minutes of act one with teasers of whether it's an alien or not. So yeah, that was great. 
Well, the trailer almost, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you did not watch the trailer before because that gave, not only gave a lot away, but it's like has all the best quotes in it too. Uh, <laughs> they really, you know, chopped together. Uh, it's like a three minute trailer. It has, like I said, I, I've sort of wrote down some of my favorite quotes uh, while watching it this time. And then I'm like, rewatching the trailer i'm like oh they're all in here there's a reason that they're my favorite quotes because they're all featured in the trailer but um the, the basic story is uh, set in south london as teenagers defend their neighborhood from violent extraterrestrials on guy fox night um it starts off we, we start off in a scene where there's fireworks coming down it looks like a sort of like a like the fourth of july here but um it's actually guy fox night which is november 5th in london um and this is where we meet our, our first character, Sam. She's walking alone, and these young boys on bicycles rob her and take her phone. Um, and like you said, right away, this comet crashes into a car. And they, what I think is really interesting is that they don't hide this, this alien in the shadows. There's no, it's, it's like right there, front and center. They chase this thing into, a, into like a little uh, hut <laughs> and, and kill it and drag it out. And these boys are sort of, you can tell, you know, they, they think that they're more a little more badass than they actually are. You can tell they're a little <laughs> nervous to rob her. Um, they're a little squirrely. You know, they're little shits, but um, they have hearts to them. And, and we get to know them over the course of the movie. Um, but I think this is such like a fun adventure. It, and it did bum me out to know it didn't do well financially um, at the box office because I feel like that, you know, this could have been a big launching pad for Joe Cornish, who's. Um, sort of in that same field house as Edgar Wright. I mean, the, Edgar Wright was the executive producer on this. Um, and, and like I said, uh, Joe Cornish went on to write Ant-Man for who was Edgar Wright was supposed to direct that before he had a falling out with Marvel. Huh. Um, but he did get to do the adventures of Tin Tin, which is like an animated movie based on these old graphic novels, but he hasn't, he, I think he did one movie after that. He, he wrote and directed a movie about like, I think it's like kid, a kid night or something it's about a kid who who i don't know i haven't seen it but it's just sort of a bummer because to me this is like this is so well written acted directed everything about it i love it it's a great movie and it should have like i said should have been a launching pad for someone's career and it just sort of it, it, it fell flat um at the box office and and sort of left him down and out i absolutely agree i think Joe Cornish did a wonderful job writing it with the pacing and not just getting all the reveals out too early and uh, even a, a few unexpected reveals at the end. And I, I thought it was, I thought it was the pacing and the writing I thought was really great. Uh, I mean, super entertaining. And, and there, the very beginning, there was that shed moment when they, when they chase uh, the uh, alien into the shed and they all go in. I mean, in my mind, I was thinking, well, I bet John Boyega makes it out and maybe a few other, but that it, they're probably almost all going to be slaughtered. And sure enough, they're not. They come out with a dead alien. And I'm like, oh, that was an unexpected surprise. This, yeah, okay, that was I'm, easy. Yeah, yeah, that, this, some, I, yeah. and then, of course, it has this really cool tilt uh, while they're being uh, cocky and, 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 you know, bragging. And there's this night tilt of the camera that shows these other meteors uh, slash aliens coming to earth. And it's like, that's, that's awesome. In just a few minutes, I know what I'm getting into. I know what to expect. This is going to be quite a ride. 
Yeah, I like I said, I love that they get right to it. There's like no fat on this movie. They it, it's really yes. well edited and and trimmed down so that there's no wasted scenes. Um, they, like I said, they kill this creature and, and they're sort of walking it around town like it's a trophy. Like, you know, check out what we found. <laughs> and, and everyone's reaction to it is sort of funny because it's like if I if someone walked up to me with that thing, I would not. I, 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 I mean, they're kids. So I guess when you're a kid, you're a little more. But it's like people are just sort of like some people think it's a puppet some people like what is that a sick uh-huh. dog it's like if i saw an alien i'd be losing my mind but you know I, I think um in this world like these kids see a lot they they want to act tough you know uh but that they're like i said they're carrying around like a creature and eventually their their idea which is very funny because it, it's very true like i i had I, I wasn't a bad kid but i hung out with a bad crowd growing up um <laughs> My mom was a teacher, so I sort of made friends with these kids who were like, if I'm friends with a teacher's kid, I can't get in trouble. So, so, so I was always like at the wrong at the wrong place at the wrong time, but I was never really involved in it. But it made me think, like, what would we do in this situation? I have an alien. Let's take it to Ron's house. What, what, what's Ron's? Well, it's the weed house. It's, the- <laughs> it's like well, we have an alien. What do we do with it? Take it to the weed guy. Like it, <laughs> for some reason, that makes sense in my mind, too, where I'm like, that's something we probably because I remember growing up and there was a guy that would sell the kids weed. And it was like, you know, hey, wh- wh- can we go score some weed or can we go do this? It's like, yeah, just go to this. And he had like, you know, it was like it was like Mike or something. It was like a typical like one first name. He didn't have everybody sort of knew this guy, you know, that was like shady. But yeah, they, they carry the thing to Ron's uh, weed room. And uh, this is sort of where we meet Hi-Hat. And uh, he's like a weed dealer slash rapper um, slash uh, <laughs> drug lord sort of where he he sees some leadership qualities in Moses because it's clear that Moses is the leader of this little gang of heathens. Um, and so he sort of sets Moses up with a job like you're going to be my dealer now. Um, and, and this movie's interesting because uh, I, this is like probably the 10th time I've watched it, but every time I'm, I'm sort of have to relearn the British slang that these teenagers use. Like <laughs> it, it's almost like clockwork orange where they're using their own language. Um, and this go around, I've noticed that the U S kids like teenagers are sort of stealing or picking up some of the British slang like I've heard them say bet several times and I've, I've noticed that like some of the younger kids mm. I talked to say that and I'm like, are they, I wonder if that's like, they're just getting it, you know, years later from the UK or if that was something, I don't know. But, um, it, sometimes it's hard to catch, keep up with because these kids talk so fast. Yeah. Their language was fun to listen to where there was just like, allow it and believe and like, Oh, I, I, and, and Oh gosh, I wrote down a few of their funny lines. Oh, oh yeah, I'll have to get to it when we get to certain scenes. But yeah, th- their language was fun uh, to listen to, and um, yeah, I just it, it, and I think it was really smart to put this film in uh, in, in England in, uh, in London because if this was let's say it took place in New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago, well, it it would the stakes would be lower because I mean, sadly. A, these gangs would have, uh, well, a lot more weapons and bigger weapons. But that's one thing that's appealing about it is how crude of the weapons they have. Uh, I mean, they have these, you know, fireworks and their swords and bats and switchblades and chains and, you know, even fake guns. And 
and you know, in uh, it, it reminded me of one of my all-time favorite films that hardly anybody knows about, but it came out years ago, and it was called The Orphans, and it was a Scottish film, dark comedy, and uh, it, it had that similar uh, element. Somebody wanted to kill somebody else, so for, first first step is finding a gun. So finding somebody with a gun. Well, they found that, but he didn't have any bullets. So now step two, find somebody with bullets, you know? And, uh, but because of that, you know, in, in England, uh, some people don't know it, you actually, actually have to show your age driver's license to buy some knives, even like kitchen knives and stuff. It, it's, it's different than the United States. Um, and so I think it was really smart to put it there, uh, because because of that, the, the weaponry is going to be uh, not as massive. And because of that, uh, the stakes are going to be higher and it, they're going to be more vulnerable. I, I thought that was a terrific idea. Yeah, I, I, I'll have it a little bit later in some of the trivia, but I'd read that um, the knife that Moses uses is actually like highly illegal in the in the uk and so mm. like you can't you, it's it's like sort of like something you'd have to get from you know someone on the black market or you know buy it from a friend of a friend or something you can't really buy them a source because he has that switchblade um which is just funny because it's like if he was in the u.s he could just buy as many guns as he wanted <laughs> but um they also talk about how um joe cornish made a very big point like when he brought it to the studio they were like you know they, they wanted more guns involved and he was like no i want one character hi-hat to have the gun because he's the villain of this movie not the aliens hi-hat is supposed to be the villain and i want him to have this power over everybody else where you know he's the only one not even the cops use guns you know so um it's it's interesting that you know he made a he sort of put his foot down and was like i i only want one character hi-hats and and that's who he chose that was to be the specific villain of this movie yeah, I, I thought that was a great choice to, and, and once he, uh, his, I, I can't remember what happened to his first gun. Maybe he just ran out of bullets because I, he had to go find other, other people with a gun uh-huh. that I remember. And, uh, yeah. And, and, and so he's the only one that, yeah, that has that. And there's a moment where we think one of <laughs> the good guys have a gun, but it turns out not to be. <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, that that whole side story with the kids is really great too. But uh, oh, the, yeah, the Pro- kids. probs and mayhem were just awesome. They were so fun to watch. Well, they think Moses, you know, they're they're celebrating that Moses has this new job, which is very, you know, true in this type of situation where it's like he got, um, you know, he got promoted to be one of Hi Hat's boys. And um, the celebration doesn't last long because they look out the window of uh, Ron's place, which is on, I think, the 14th floor of a high rise. And they see these comets raining down and they're like, oh, more aliens. One just crashed in the park. Let's go check it out. The first one was easy to kill. We threw fireworks at it. Let's go. <laughs> um, and, and there's sort of a montage where all these kids run home. And it's sort of nice because it, it shows how vulnerable they are. They still have families. They still have parents that care for them. But their homes are sort of broken. You know, Moses is like... I live with my uncle, but he's in and out. Um, you know, some of them run home and their moms are like, Hey, did you take, you know, make sure to take the dog out. Um, mm-hmm. you know, make sure, what are you doing? He's like, Oh, oh we were playing, uh, f- soccer or playing football or something, you know? Um, 
and that's how I got hurt. Why are you walking with a limp? You know, and um, <laughs> it's funny just because it's like they they try to play so hard, but you know, we see their inner lives that they have families, they have people who care, even if their homes aren't perfect. It's like you know they aren't as big and tough as they pr- like to portray to like the girls on the you know in the movie. They aren't just badasses. They they have um, families that care about them, but uh, they all sort of go get their weapons. They gather up what they can to go after these aliens, and uh, one of them gets his dog, which is like a sad part of the movie. He grabs his his little dog, and and they go after these aliens, and the alien ends up killing a dog. And this is where we first see our our full grown aliens, which. What a cool creature design. Yeah, I, and, and I love the uh, uh, the moment where, I mean, it obviously looks like a pair of eyes, glowing eyes, and then um, it's uh, John Boyega's uh, uh, character. I wrote it down. I just, I, I, I just liked his line there. But, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, brilliant, but it was funny. Um, yeah, I, I lost there, but I think it, I think it was something along the line of, uh, uh, I don't think those are eyes or something. And then all of a sudden the mouth comes open and it's like this fluorescent blue, uh, yeah, gigantic jaw. But at the same time, the entire body was this pitch black, blacker than black. And then it becomes a joke later, but, uh, yeah, it was just like, wow, that, yeah, that was, that was cool. And they, in the, the moments. <laughs> the moments during that where they well especially when hi-hat had a gun on one of the characters uh uh i think it was pest i could be wrong where um he didn't want him to say alien a oh, third yeah. time S- say alien <laughs> that, one that, more time that's that, uh, that uh gorilla wolf motherfucker <laughs> yeah yeah i i absolutely love all the all the names they come up for this thing um there's yeah. gorilla wolf motherfucker there's uh Goldums, they call them uh uh pokemon they call them gremlins <laughs> uh they call they, there's like there's like 20 pop culture references in this movie as to what they are um and it's it's very much like if if a fucking alien fell from the sky right now and you talk to like a high schooler they would probably reference something from tiktok or something you know they would they would absolutely <laughs> compare it to a pokemon still which is still relevant i think but um it's just it's just interesting like i love that it, he says uh, one character at some point says it's like something from gears of war and i'm like you know <laughs> like they they're they're seeing this as like a, a character from a, a video game but um i i just absolutely love because we've seen a million alien movies and it's hard to come up with a new creature that's believable and the first time i saw this right. i was just in, in awe of what they did because it's it's very simple and it's, but it's just so unique and it's terrifying because at night it's like you, you basically can see their teeth and nothing else. Um, I don't know if that was to like a budgetary thing. It was, it was like mm. easy to create cause you don't have to create the flowing fur. You don't really have to show any features, but it's really effective. Like if, if it was to, um, you know, do it on a small budget is genius because it's actually cooler to not be able to see anything but the teeth. Yeah. And I, 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 Caught also a, a pop culture reference to 28 Days Later, which I'm wondering if they added that in late or because uh, Thomas Townend, the cinematographer, worked on the crew for 28 Days Later. And I, I wonder if they snuck that in there maybe as a for his sake. I don't know. But what, what was the was, reference? Uh, I think it was the character. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, I think it was Jerome uh, who was saying. 
uh, I think it was maybe during that same tunnel moment, uh, he was saying, he was kind of describing how the night was going to go. National emergency, army on the streets, helicopters, all that 28 days later shit. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, see, every time I watch this, I catch something else um, because right. one, their accents are very thick and two, they just go so fast. Um, these And the crazy thing is most of these, I was looking at the cast and most of these um, actors outside of the, the big two haven't really gone on to do much of anything. Some of them, this was their only role. And that amazes me just because like they had never done before and haven't done something since. And I think Jerome was one of them. He he does not have a single um, other uh, credit huh. to his name. And I'm like, damn, that's a shame because these kids are really, really good and believable in this. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I thought it was super well cast and uh, yeah, I thought all of the, I, I did the same thing. I went on IMBD to find out who is who and what they're doing now and was surprised to see how, how little, uh, uh, some of them, you know, yeah, work they're doing. Maybe they discovered other, other, you know, things they want to do in life. But uh, yeah, oh gosh, it, yeah, they very well cast. Yeah, um, I, I I remember, like I said, seeing this, and at the time, obviously, John Boyega was not someone anyone knew, and I I just remember seeing that he had been cast in Star Wars, and I was just like yes finally like you know he's getting it was, it was almost like validation for someone who just loved this movie where it's like i knew he was good and and he was going to do bigger things and now it's finally like now now i i was hoping it would bring more eyes and i think it did to attack the block where i knew like um remington smith was a big fan of this movie and he was like as soon as he mm. got you know they announced star wars for uh, john boy goes to star wars like okay now you got to check out attack the block uh if if you if you want to see what this kid is capable of, and it was I think his for, sort of first major role, um, but he's so good in it. Um, and and right after they they uh, see the first creature, they take off on their bikes and scooters, and the police just by their dumb luck, the police catch or see them, and they end up uh, catching Moses. Uh, the rest of them are hiding up on this walkway, and they're sort of watching. And lo and behold, they have uh, the girl with them that they had robbed earlier. Um, <laughs> and he's like, Moses is like begging them, put me in a van, put me in a van because he knows what's coming and he knows that they're not going to listen to him. Um, so they get him in the cop van and boom, these alien creatures come up and they kill the cops as the boys watch. And now they're stuck in a van. So um, which is really cool is Pest, who's sort of the. Um, data if you're comparing this to like the goonies <laughs> he always has like a backpack full of, of fireworks um takes like a roll of firecrackers lights it throws it perfectly to roll underneath the the cop, yeah, of course. Uh, cop van and explode it and sends it on a side um he saves a day they end up actually stealing the cop van moses gets in and uh they they take off and literally run into high hat so it's like they keep getting themselves deeper and deeper in trouble in this because first they're they're running from the aliens, then they're running from the cops. They get away from the cops. Now they're running away from hi hats who thinks that um, Moses is has taken he's exposed him because he took the drugs from him and got caught by the cops. And now hi hats feels like you know you're mine now. Like and it was like almost immediately right after they leave hi hats place, he gets caught with it. Um, but no one, no one else quite believes that these alien things are existing. And that's where we have the scene that you just talked about where he's holding up the gun. And I think it is, um, I'm not, I, I don't remember if it was, uh, who it was that was trying to explain to him, um, 
yeah, he's like, you know, all these there's there's alien motherfuckers after us. And, and, and he's like, say it one more time, one more time. <laughs> right. And that's and the perfect timing is right when this creature comes in. Um, so there's so many of those moments. Um, but eventually we get this really cool um, scene where they all sort of jump on mopeds or scooters and uh, the, the creatures are chasing them. And that seems pretty tense. Um, they all sort of split up and head different ways. Uh, trying to get back to the the building or the block, um, and that's a really intense chase scene. They get back, and eventually they end up back in the building. Run into Sam and break into her flat. Um, gets they get bit by one of them, and mm-hmm. his leg gets caught. I believe that one is also. And there's so many. I think that's Pest also gets bit. Um, yeah. Pest Pest Pest's leg gets bit, so they go in. They find out she's actually a nurse, and. Uh, there's some really funny dialogue in that scene where, yeah. you know, they're like, we're your hero. And she's like, some fucking hero. You, you, you robbed me earlier. You're not a hero. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she's like, let's call the cops. And he's like, you better luck calling the Ghostbusters. Uh, <laughs> he always has some kind of smart ass response anytime she says something, um, which I absolutely love. But uh, eventually they uh, they get into the flat and Moses ends up killing one with a sword. And it's like. Oh shit, Moses is pretty badass. Um, they keep sort of jumping from place to place. They leave this place after these things break into her flat and they rent, run down to the girl's house and get into their eventually talk sweet talk them into letting them into there. Um, and of course, the aliens are just keep following, which is like the first time I watched this, I did not catch on to the idea that this these aliens were chasing Moses specifically. Right. Which is a you know that is a reveal. Um, we find out that there's a reason that they're going after Moses, and it's it's funny looking back after seeing this so many times. It's like it should be obvious. Like you know, there no one else. I mean, everything's centered around Moses. They're all they're all attacking anytime Moses is around. When they're up on that um, walkway, the aliens aren't bothering them. They're after Moses. They're trying to break into the police van. Um, you know, everywhere they go. And it's like, well, why would they be after Moses? Well, he's the one that, you know, has he, he has been carrying around the, the little baby alien. Right. I thought that was a, 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 a you're, you're exa- exactly right. When I watched it the second time, uh, I watched it uh, shortly after we first spoke and then I watched it yesterday. So it'll be fresh in my mind. And uh, I didn't catch it the first time around. But, yeah, you're, you're right. It, 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 it's kind of like watching The Sixth Sense, you know, where once you watch it one time, now you're going back for the clues. And it's like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. They, they are targeting Moses. But they also very smartly put in your mind that the aliens might be highly intelligent and they're going after him specifically out of revenge because they know he's the one who killed uh, this other alien. And I thought, they, I thought they did a terrific job holding off that reveal and kind of keeping that mysterious. And for me personally, like, they, it felt uh, the story was between. Sam and Moses. Mm-hmm. And I, I kept, I thought Joe Cornish did a wonderful job writing it where uh, when she escaped the first time and I'm thinking, I wonder how they're going to bring them back together. And then I, then I watch how they do that. And then I, they separate again. And I'm thinking they've got to come back together again. I wonder what the writers, what choice they're making to, uh, to, to bring these characters back together. And, and then when they are together, there's these little moments that happen that, they start to understand a little more about each other. And, and there's, the very, uh, there's a lot of pride about being on this block and being from this block, very territorial. 
And right. that's mentioned several times throughout, but in, in a very subtle, great way that, you know, uh, they wouldn't have robbed her if they knew she was from the block. And, it, right. uh, and yeah, just uh, kind of a classism kind of thing going on there that I thought was really well done. Yeah, eventually they sort of find a mutual respect for each other um, because, you know, he's protecting her now. Um, and now he, he makes Pest give back the ring that he took from her. And he apologizes. Yeah. Uh, you know, he sort of has to put his pride to the side. And, and if we still see at right at the beginning that these kids are almost just as scared to rob her as she was getting robbed. Um, you know, they, they're doing it, but it's like it's almost like a show of um alpha like you have to sh prove you have to prove something to your friends like that you would actually do this mm -hmm. um and this is a scene where they uh eventually they break into that the girl's flat and one actually um beheads dennis so we sort of get our first member of the crew actually killed so the stakes mm -hmm. are finally sort of raised like it's finally got a hold of one of their group um i feel like you know there, there's a bit of a hierarchy in the group. Obviously, Moses is the leader. It feels like Pest is sort of second in command. Um, you know, and every it's it's almost like they they have their um, rankings. But um, eventually, the nurse uh, she kills one, and then the girls kill one too. When Moses gets uh, his sword stuck in the wall, <laughs> yeah. uh, at the at the most inopportune time, right as one's <laughs> yeah. approaching him, and he's going to be the hero. But they uh they actually end up killing one by just beating it with objects they have in a room, which is again like you talked about earlier. They don't have real weapons, so when they distract it and it gets in their bedroom, they just beat the hell out of it till it dies. <laughs> it's like you know th what what I do think is cool about this that we don't see in other movies like this is that these things can be taken out. They're not you know um, like yeah. Geiger Ge Geiger's aliens or. Um, you know, these creatures that are unstoppable, you, you can, you can take them out and, you know, you just, they're, they're like animals there. You can shoot them or you can stab them. They don't have any type of, um, supernatural ability to heal or live. You just, but these kids also don't have real weapons. I mean, I, I guess a sword counts pretty right. well, but, uh, you know, they're, they're doing with what they have fireworks and, and, um, blunt objects. Yeah, I, I'm so happy you mentioned the stakes because uh, it, there's a lot of uh, uh, inexperienced writers who, uh, I'm, I'm, and I'm I just like on a local scene, if I read a, uh, a full-length feature screenplay from uh, a peer, sometimes they forget that the stakes have to raise. And uh, sometimes it's the opposite, where the, the journey gets a little easier for the protagonist rather than the other way around. and uh, Joe Cornish did a great job with, uh, again, separating some of the gang members. Biggs gets trapped in a dumpster. Yeah, and, for most of the movie. Uh, for most of the movie. When he makes that jump, that was foreshadowed at the beginning. beginning. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, one of them gets shot. And, uh, you know, they, uh, then a few of them start to die. And, uh, and, and then Hi-Hats is, is closing in. And the cops are closing in. And just, I mean, it's... They're, what's really cool is it wasn't just the aliens. It, it was so many other, other people in it that they were in danger from. And uh, so the stakes, I mean, seriously, somebody could use this as a, a way to, to show an inexperienced writer how to keep the stakes high and exciting. So I'm really happy you mentioned that. 
Yeah, like every time you think that they're getting a break, um, if they get a break from the aliens, high hats is right there. If if uh, you know they get a break from high hats, like you said, there's always something else. The cops are after them, um, and eventually, right after they sort of realize, you know, uh, after the, the girls kill that one, they're, they're they hide out in the weed room, which is all blacklit and they look at Moses and realize that he's got like splatters all over him. And this is the big reveal when they realize, (laughs) Oh, it's obviously chasing him because it can smell him. And and there's some foreshadowing, which I thought was genius earlier in the, in the movie where they're sitting at Ron's house and they're all getting high and they're watching a nature documentary. Yeah. And it shows like a moth releasing its pheromones. And it's like, you know, obviously, like I said, looking (laughs) back on it after you watch it once, you see it again. It's like, oh, you know, that was that was not just a pointless, which is funny because I I know a lot of stoners and they do watch that kind of stuff. So it's uh, (laughs) very true to to, uh, but uh, Bruis is the white kid whose car was smashed at the beginning. He keeps running in and I haven't really mentioned him much, but he keeps running into this group at the worst of times, bad things keep happening to this poor kid. He's just trying to, to get some weed and go home and hang and listen to music. And, <laughs> and the, the group does not respect him at the beginning. Um, they think mm-hmm. he's sort of a dork. They, they, uh, they sort of tease him and, and rip on him and bully him. He's waiting for an elevator. They take it from him and tell him to catch the next mm-hmm. one. Um, but towards the end, they, he gains their respect. Um, because he's like the brains of the group. He re- he's the one that sort of realizes, like, hey, the pheromones, like, just like the the moth earlier in the documentary we're watching, you know, he puts two and two together and finally pays off where they realize, you know, the, the pheromones are, are what's setting off these aliens. They're not after us. They're after you. And then Moses is like, you know, I'm being the hero that he is. He's like, OK, they're after me. You guys go. I'm going to let it let it come at me. And um, I think Pest is the one that says, you know, I've got your back. And then they all sort of say, okay, we got your back. They come up with a, a really smart game plan of basically making, mm-hmm. turning this baby into like a backpack and using it as bait. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's pretty funny. And, and hi hats are still after them. There's a scene where um, hi hats is at the, the, in the block on the building and he, he's trapped in an elevator with these things. And it, it goes, I think up or down and you assume that he's he's dead and i even wrote my notes like i've seen this several times and for some reason my brain forgot it and i'm like oh they kill hi-hats off screen and then the elevator door opens and he's still alive he's killed these things which sort of shows you know that how strong of a villain he is it's like they're worried about the aliens but man like hi-hats is the thing they should be worried about yeah absolutely and and bruis was one of my favorite characters i mean he was yeah very much like um uh, Nick Frost character where just the, they they just want to get stoned and they're they're low, low key and you know just Bruce is just having some bad luck throughout the night but he's <laughs> you know he's pretty chill and then he's the one who comes up with the solution uh, you know or the uh, the the answer to why they're being chased and like I I thought that was perfect you know to to have Bruce come up with I I loved watching uh, his character uh 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 gosh who was that was uh oh luke luke treadway yeah who yeah. played Bruce, and i thought he was terrific in it and um uh yeah just that that was a great reveal and then it, then um and then that leads toward yeah the the end of end of the film which i thought was i, I thought it was emotional and really poignant and i especially when uh the character sam uh jody whitaker goes to his place 
and gets a chance to see uh, how he lives. And, right, and sort of under, has uh, an understanding. Yeah, and notices his like uh, childlike uh, uh, blankets and, and uh, sleepwear and stuff. And, and she goes, do you have a little brother? And he goes, no. And she goes, how old are you? 15. It's like, whoa, wait a second. Because yeah. earlier in the film, Hi-Hats was even saying to him, hey, no, you're, you're uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, you're at an age now where you can do bigger things. So I'm going to want you to, you know, do these, you know, run these drugs for me or whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, he must be about 2021 then, you know, just picking an age out of the air. And then this reveal at the end that he's just 15 years old. And, uh, yeah, that was like a lot of the things that happened earlier in the movie now is easily more, more easily forgivable because of how, how young he is and how the, the living conditions, not just his own personal space, but just being on this block and just surviving you know, being, uh, you know, the, the profiling from the police and just, you know, struggling in this. And I think, I think they called it the ends. I think it was the name of the block. If I remember. Right. right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then we get that really cool shot where, uh, mayhem and probs are playing around outside, um, with their fake guns and they look up and they're like, you know, they're gone. And it's like, no, he goes, they're all right there. And they look up at the building and there's like, you know, a hundred of them or whatever climbing a high rise. Yeah. It's like, Oh shit. How is he going to take these out? Um, once again, raising the stakes throughout the movie over and Uh over and again. Um, and I love that shot for, I mean, it's, it's $13 million budget. So it's not like a small budget movie, but, um, Uh just such a cool shot of, of those things climbing up the building. Well, and it's, it's giving us information that the people inside the building don't have yet. So as soon as, we, we go from that shot to now the shot of them in the building making the plan to get, you know, and it's like, oh, they don't know what's coming. And we do. And there's something exciting about that. And yeah, like you said, again, upping the stakes and uh, yeah, yeah, good stuff. It's, and, and they try to make their way back to Ron's um, place and they use these like, they, of course, they use the fireworks to sort of try to smoke these things out and kill them. Um, in the process, unfortunately, we lose Jerome, who's one of my favorite characters in this movie. He's like, to me, like <laughs> sort of the one of the more sympathetic characters in this one. Um, yeah. One that clearly cares and sort of they show his vulnerability throughout the movie. Um, but they do end up killing and ripping off Hi-Hat's face, which is uh, sort of a validating <laughs> moment. It's like, OK, the aliens are, you know, we're not rooting for the aliens, but they did end up killing Hi-Hat. So we don't have to worry about him anymore. But there's 100 aliens. So the, the stakes are still high. Um, and while they're hiding in the weed room, coming up with this plan, um, like I said, they, they send Sam down to Moses flat or his uncle's flat to sort of set a trap, which she turns all the gas on, closes up some of the doors, basically sets a booby trap for um Moses to use this baby as a backpack and lead all these um gorilla mother gorilla wolf motherfuckers back to his <laughs> the flat um and blow them up and um we think for a second Moses is dead but he ends up surviving he's hanging out and uh we have a sort of fun ending where all the kids are are, are getting arrested and carried out but the crowd knows that they saved the block and so they it's sort of funny because you know these kids Yes, they're being arrested, but like for the image they want people to think of them, like the image they want to portray to people, this is like the best case scenario. They're getting arrested, but they're also hailed as heroes. <laughs> it's like we're bad, we're the badass heroes that you know. It's like uh, 
just a perfect ending for these characters. They and Moses, you know, he just he looks so badass and they're chanting Moses as he's getting carried out. Yeah. Um, and, and just a very happy ending. But also, you know, a lot of his friends are dead. Um, and and uh, uh, just a really cool cap to it. I, I wouldn't know how to really end this myself. And I, I think that they landed it perfectly. I totally agree. In fact, uh, again, I thought it was an emotional scene, too, because, you know, he's he's 15 and uh, we've seen evidence while watching this movie that in his character that he has compassion and courage. And it's like with with the people chanting his name, he's got it. You know, then it ends with him smiling and maybe maybe the only time he smiled during the entire movie. And it's like it gives a, a sense of hope that maybe he's actually going to make it out of here and make it out of the block and have uh, a more, uh, quote, normal life. And I totally dig that. I was like, I was, I was invested in the character and I was totally, totally happy that it's like, yeah, you know, he's, he's going to make it. It gives, gives me a little hope that this character is going to make it and not get stuck and, you know, and, and uh, have a cruddy life. So I, I thought that was a great ending. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a nice cap to it. I think it's a, a fantastic movie and I have all kinds of trivia to go through. So um, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back with some trivia. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, as always, um, take most of this with a grain of salt because I find it on the internet and not everything on the internet <laughs> is true. But uh, when doing research for the film, Joe Cornish asked one of the girls, what would you think of this creature if you found it? The girl said, I wouldn't touch it. Don't want to get chlamydia. That quote went straight into the script <laughs> and uh, many lines were taken directly from research. Um, which one of the That was a laugh out loud moment in this one because I, I sort of mentioned earlier, it's like, Th- these are real reactions that people would give if this thing was being carried around. Yeah. Uh, the answer is true. Did I get it right? Or <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that, okay. Yeah, you're right. It, that, that was, that was a definitely a laugh out loud uh, line. And I didn't, I had no idea about the research, what, what you're talking about right now. That's pretty, pretty cool. Uh, Writer-director Joe Cornish interviewed various kids and youth groups in order to find out what kind of weapons they would use if an alien invasion occurred. So I love that he's actually, like, he knows that he's not a kid, so he's got to get their perspective. Mm. Like, if if this were to happen, what would you have? And these kids are probably like, fireworks, baseball bats, uh, you know, knives, whatever. Like, the kids are, like, not thinking, like, I would have a gun, you know? So uh, Mm. he actually took their input and used it in the movie. Oh, cool, cool. Um, yeah, the filmmakers only use CG effects when absolutely necessary and to enhance practical effects for the creatures rather than replace them completely. Even the smaller female alien that appeared before the credits was a petite woman in a creature suit. A puppet type head was used for some of the attack shots where Moses is suddenly bitten. 
The creature's head was carefully constructed masks that had no eyes, and even the glowing mouthful of large teeth were achieved by animatronics, including 12 servos, rather than added in post. The filmmakers admit that it did help save money, but also had an unexpected benefit. The actors, rather than reading to something that wasn't there, admitted that they were genuinely and unexpectedly frightened by the look and movements of creatures actually present. Nearly every actor said they felt especially intimidated, many surprisingly so, by the physical presence in a way they would not have if the creatures had been added digitally later. The same for the majority of the settings, director said. It added authenticity and atmosphere to shoot on a set rather than in front of a green screen. So I'm a big proponent. I've talked about it on this podcast before. Um, I think one of my one of the best examples is um, Simon Pegg, who coincidentally sort of has a tie into this movie because of Edgar Wright. Um, he he talks about showing his kids the, the original Star Wars movies and then showing them the prequels. Huh. And his kid, his little boy asked, like, what happened to Yoda? And it's like, what do you mean? It's like, he's a cartoon in the new movies. And it's like, uh-huh. he recognized that Yoda was a real puppet in the first movies, believed that Yoda was real and that they somehow replaced him with like animation, you know, cause they did like more CGI. And he sort of talked about how like in the, in the newest new movies that coincidentally John Boyega are in, um, that they went back to using a more puppet so that because it's, it's something about our like especially with kids you know they don't see through a filter they can't suspend their disbelief their eyes are focused right there they can see that mm-hmm. something's physically on the screen compared to you know a cgi especially at the time when those prequels were made i mean obviously things are a little better now but still something and especially when you're acting i'm sure you can appreciate that as an actor like it's completely different acting to something that's literally there compared to something that's um, on like a green screen or fake. Oh, I'm absolutely also a proponent to, um, yeah, I I love practical effects and uh, over digital and and digital has its place and it's time. And again, I've, I've had to use both practical and digital effects in editing and, um, but even for one of my last films, I needed city sounds, and so I grabbed my Rode microphone and my Zoom recorder, and I started walking around the city of Des Moines and getting different construction sounds and uh, nightclub sounds and different. I wanted, uh, and I could have gone online and done that and probably saved a lot of time, but I really wanted a, a, a realistic, I, I don't know, I, I, I wanted it to be what I found. And there's just something, even though people at home watching it aren't going to know that, uh, I get up. There's something about watching it myself and going, I got that sound. And, and uh, even with uh, uh, my film that is actually playing this coming weekend, it's very last showing on the festival circuit uh, is Wilt. And it's going to be playing at the Mystic Film Festival in Connecticut. And for that particular one, there are a few sounds that we didn't quite capture um, uh, in principal to- photography, I mean, we did a great job capturing sound, but there were a few I just wanted it to be louder. And one was just picking up keys off of a table. And so I just did that at home, picked the keys off my table and made it louder and made it, you know, or a door closing or different things. And, uh, or throwing cell phones onto my garage floor to get a crashing sound of a cell phone. And <laughs> that we did, because the one we used in the film that was thrown was actually plastic. Or yeah. I mean, like completely molded plastic fake phone, oh, and okay. so um, I'm I, yeah, and even uh, I, gosh, I don't. This was so many years ago. I don't know if you remember. I had a film called No More, where we used it was like this uh, dragon type thing. I I didn't use a digital blast. I actually used 
a shotgun that shot special uh, shotgun shells that gave kind of this fiery, sparky kind of thing. And uh, because I wanted that practical effect, and I love the way it turned out. So, yeah, I love practical effects. Very cool. Um, Writer-director Joe Cornish was inspired to make this film after actually being mugged in real life one night. Um, He noticed his five young assailants were as scared as he was and started researching their lives. Oh, wow. Um, Wow, that is way cool. Yeah. And and for me, too, it was easy to uh, relate to these characters because, like you, I also hung around a rough crowd and it was the town cop son who is my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh so similar backstories there. I totally relate to these kids and wow, that's that's I would not want to be robbed to inspire a story, but that's a that's pretty cool. Uh Joe Cornish has stated that watching signs and imagining what would happen if it took place in South London was an inspiration for Attack the Block. Hmm. Okay. So it's funny, we talked about M. Night Shyamalan a little bit earlier. Um, most of the teenage actors were found through their schools and online open audition calls. Uh, Joe Cornish used mostly unknowns, kids who were involved in drama clubs or had otherwise demonstrated interest in acting. 1,500 young people were auditioned over and over in part, mm. so Cornish would know that aspiring actors would show up on time and have self-discipline. During the Mm. process, they learned lines and did improv. After casting, the last two drafts Cornish wrote were influenced by the actors, letting them go through the dialogue and discuss any changes they wanted. So that's Mm. really cool to have them like have an input on what they would their characters would sort of actually say, um, you know, let them sort of write their own slang. I imagine a lot of that stuff was was actually come up with by the kids. Uh, uh, you know what, if I were, if I were to write something now that had, uh, teenage characters in it, I would absolutely reach out to my own kids and, uh, say, Hey, what, what words are being spoken? What, what sentences and slang and, and, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't know it. You know, I, I hear something occasionally, but it doesn't really stay in my brain for long. So I, yeah, I would. I, I, you know, the more you talk about Joe Cornish, the more I want to Google him and find out more about him. He sounds like he would be great to work with. Yeah, I, I, uh, I like I said, I wish he had more stuff after this. Like he only has one film he's directed outside. You know, he did. Uh, like I said, he wrote Ant Man and and uh, mm-hmm. did Tintin. But yeah, I, I would love to. And they're talking about doing a sequel to this, which I'm surprised with. Uh, the I saw that amount of money they didn't make on it, but um, it has right. a cult following. So maybe, you know, second time's a charm, a little smaller budget. I don't know. Um, but Joe, yeah, Cornish, I see that. Sorry. I see that boy. Uh, John Boyega is uh, for that sequel, a producer on it. Yeah. He's been taught. He said so. he's been meeting with Joe Cornish and sort of uh, they've been hashing out ideas for a sequel. I'll watch it. <laughs> Me too. Uh, Joe Cornish based the character of Bruis on himself when he was in his twenties. <laughs> that's pretty cool that that is uh he also did in-depth research on language to accurately convey the way south london street kids speak so um once again just so, a lot of a lot of research went into writing the dialogue to make it believable um 
He ended up having to yeah. remove 15 pages of the script prior to the shooting of the film because of budgetary constraints. Um, I don't know what was in those 15 minutes or 15 pages. I would love to see what had to be cut, um, but mm. I, I did not find any information on like a, a director's cut script or something, uh, the extended script. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's a tight 90 minutes. I really enjoy it. I think um, it does. I, I don't know. I like it the way it is. I don't need any more. Yeah, I that's, uh, you know, uh, as someone who has uh, a a little bit of production experience. That's uh, something now too that affects my writing now is uh, I mean, not to a degree where it uh, strips the story of everything, but uh, you know, when it comes to budget, you know, keeping th something, you know, uh, locations in mind. And I successfully talked myself out of an acting role in a feature film shot earlier this year I'm not going to say which one. It was a great film to be a part of because I eventually <laughs> was part of it. But uh, first time ever, and the only time ever, I, I reached out to the producer and I said, you know, I appreciate you wanting me to be a part of this particular scene, but I really think it's a throwaway scene. I think you're, it's going to be more time in principal photography. It's going to be another actor to pay. And, uh, you know, I wasn't taking work away from another actor, just me. But... Um, and they said, you know, she talked it over with the director and said, you know what, you're right. We're, we're going to cut that scene, but we would like you still involved. So, you know, and I was like, oh, God, I just talked. I just, you know, lost a job there. <laughs> but, yeah. but but I, it's just that producer side of me that it's like, you know, we, you know, um, and, and this is a colleague and a friend and I and I and I want it to be a great thing. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I was more caring to ha have a quality project or product without, you know not yeah. being selfish that i'm gonna get say, paid to act yeah sacrifice yourself a little bit for the uh good of the film is not all that bad so i mean yeah. it, it's probably you know I, I don't know that's something that's a very west thing that the only you would do that <laughs> <laughs> doesn't surprise me at all um member members of the game compare the film's aliens to various fantastical creatures all british in origin namely dobby the house elf from jk rowling's harry potter <laughs> novels um gollum from uh, the works of jk tolkien and gremlins who while they are now best known for their two american films by joe dante were born out of the imagination of raf fighter pilots pilots during world war ii and were uh, initially popularized by author raul Dahl in his first novel um, Joe Cornish always had Boba Fett from Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back in mind when they did Pest's costume with his rocket packs on his back. <laughs> Which now seeing that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, uh, yeah, he was one to yeah reach reach behind himself and grab one of those firecrack or you know big rockets like he was drawing a sword. Yep. In light. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the alien design was based on the aliens pictured on the Space Invaders arcade cabinet. Oh, gosh, I don't even remember what that looks like. Me either. Oh. I have to Google it afterwards because uh, I don't recognize it. I just know, like, Nikki has a whole sleeve tattoo and um, they're always like it, it, they're various movies inspired tattoos. And, and they're always trying to figure out like some filler to sort of make the tattoos flow together. And uh -huh. uh, she came up with the idea of filling in spaces with the attack to block creatures because they're just sort of like very simplistic so um she has them like filling in between tattoos all the way up uh, up and down oh, her cool arm. yeah uh awesome yeah because this is one that we saw together we drove to iowa city uh 
and saw it opening weekend and we were like the only people in the little theater at the the sycamore theater in iowa city we were the only people there <laughs> on like a friday uh and we but just had a blast seeing it yeah i was gonna say i i've a handful of times in my life i've been the only one in the theater and i love it <laughs> yeah yeah it's like both great and sad because it's like i wish more people were seeing this but uh you know right having a theater to yourself and and it was like one of those things where it's almost like amplified it that no one else saw it. i'm like you guys are all missing out on this great film go see it go see it trying to tell people and they're like yeah sure you know and uh, I think it's it's sort of found its audience. I've thought about showing it to my friends. Like I, I do a birthday movie night at the Capitol once a year, and I uh, mm-hmm. do two. I don't tell anyone what movies I'm playing. Um, and this one has been in contention almost every year. But I think most of my friends have seen it just from my um, constant pestering at this point. Uh, <laughs> the areas. Well, is, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go I was ahead. just I, I just had the next bit of trivia. So you, if you had something. No, I was I was just going to say I'm, I add that I'm really happy you picked this one out and um I I I understand why you were excited about it and again I was pessimistic at first but it's like because I'd never heard of it and I, and I think I but I had to go back and think well this came out about 10 years ago what was going on in my life in 10, you know I, well I because I had four kids still in school and uh life was super super busy and I just somehow missed it and didn't get to i imagine i didn't get to a lot of films 10 years ago but um yeah well Great this pick. this came out i think i said july but that was only in like big cities like chicago new york la um and then it rolled out i think in august to still more limited theaters and then it went like vod like two weeks after that but it just mm. didn't make a big splash and and you know they tried to use like the the whole like from producers of Shaun of the dead and hot fuzz um yeah but but those were still sort of sleeper hits here too you know um like world's end and and hot fuzz and like i still had to drive to Mm. iowa city to see those they didn't play at my local theater so uh you know i don't know if it's you know they just the british films just aren't as popular here or what but um you know it it doesn't surprise me that you missed it because apparently looking at the uh, box office most people missed it so um don't feel too bad about that yeah, it seems as such. I, I was actually shocked when I read the budget uh, and, and the, or the box office numbers in, on IMBD with this film. And which, you know, when I saw that it lost money, I thought, well, I, wanna, I, I suppose that uh, How to Talk to Girls at Parties probably made money. It's similar, but it had bigger name actors in it. And sure enough, that lost money too. And it's yeah. like, oh, well, there must be something about this particular niche that just doesn't appeal to the mass audiences but it absolutely appeals to me i love yeah yeah me too and uh i i uh, sort of related i saw um there was like a headline a couple months back that um there was a few studios interested in buying a24 and they put up like a a ridiculous Mm. like like 500 million dollar uh price tag that they knew would not sell for you know, and it was like some of the some of the places were scoffing at it and they're like, well, we don't want to sell it. So we just put up a price tag. We knew no one would pay um, because we believe in our value. So I thought that was cool. Like, you know, like Disney or somebody actually was was considering or making offers at a 24 and they're like, nope, you can't have us. I'm well, you know, I'm going to be happy to hear that because uh, I set a goal earlier this year maybe it was late last year to watch every single film from a24 films and um i I did reach that goal it was slightly over 100 films but um and i had already watched many of them 
And so it wasn't rewatching ones I've already watched. So it wasn't like I watched just, you know, a hundred films. Um, but Still the uh, undertaking, you probably had only seen what, like half of them or something. Oh, uh, yeah, oh, uh, under that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, uh, cause some of them I'd never even heard of before. So it was fun to check them out. And although I will say I haven't been terribly happy with any of the A24 Westerns, you know, but uh, otherwise I've really enjoyed most of the other ones. but, uh, uh, yeah, good to know. Cause I, I'm, I'm still a big fan of that, that studio. Me too. And it gives, it gives you hope that there's still like some artistic integrity, you know, not saying that like there's not artists, like artists don't work for Disney or whatever, but it's nice that like to know that there's always going to be this studio that sort of has that attitude of like you bunny can't, you can't just buy us out. Like we're, we are here for the, the small filmmakers and, and, you know, um, we're, we're here to create new and, and fun and exciting things. So. Heck yeah. It's like this podcast. You're not selling out You're you know, if anyone you, wants, you, you to, could, yeah, it wouldn't take you could much. have got somebody far more, you know, entertaining and famous <laughs> than me, but you're, you know, no, no, of course not. <laughs> uh, I, I added this bit of trivia in because, um, of your writing background. And I thought this would be interesting to you. Um, the areas and surrounding roads are named after well-known British science fiction authors. Um, Wyndham tower named after John Wyndham, Moore court, Alan Moore, um, Huxley Court, Aldous Huxley, Wells Court, H.G. Wells, Clark <sighs> Court, Arthur C. Clark, um, Ballard Street, J.G. Ballard, Adam Street, Douglas Adams, um, Clayton Street and Clayton Estate, Joe Clayton, and Herbert Way, Frank Herbert. Um, James Street may allude to horror writer M.R. James, and uh, Frank Herbert was, in fact, American, so if the reference is supposed to be a British writer, it may be another reference to Herbert... Uh, George or H.G. Wells. Um, Herbert Way is more likely as a reference to James Herbert, the horror author who based most of his books in London. So um, just a little love letter to some uh, hmm. British science fiction authors that I only know a few of those names. Um, I'm not as well read, but uh, I think that's always interesting when it's not an obvious, you know, uh, like you, you a lot of I, I and we talk about this on Attack of the Killer podcast when you're watching an indie movie and they name their characters like Carpenter and Craven. It's like a little too <laughs> a little too on the nose. I get the idea like that you want to, you know, but it's sometimes it's a little too obvious um, and it's distracting where this is a fun little thing <laughs> for, you know, most I, I had no idea. Like I, I didn't know that until I read this. And uh, it's probably more of a fan theory than anything, but um, it, it's almost too many to be. Uh, a coincidence but i thought it was interesting yeah it seems like too many to be a coincidence and i too only recognize a few of those names but uh yeah to i totally missed that that reference that's i like that uh the walkway chase set piece took 10 days to shoot while the film was shot uh cr pretty much chronologically in cr chronological order in 67 days so the walkway chase mm. oh, alone gosh. was 10 of those 67 days um Quentin Tarantino included Attack the Block in his list of the 10 best films of 2011, so he didn't miss it. And uh, <laughs> last but not least, Joe Cornish was very keen that only hi-hats use guns. He's the genuine villain, the only villain. He's the only guy who shoots anyone. If I put guns in hands of other characters, it would become a whole different film. And that's mm -hmm. uh, a, a quote from Joe Cornish. So I, I mentioned that one earlier, but um, having his direct quote, I wanted to, to put that out there. 
Oh man, what a fun movie. I, uh, I think it's, is it on Hulu or Netflix? It, it jumps around the streaming services. So if you're listening to this later, um, I, I use this app called just watch and you type in the, the movie name and it tells you where it's, uh, it's streaming. It's a very useful tool. Um, every, we use it all the time for the, for the attack, the killer podcast, uh, with so many different streaming services, but, um, it seems like this is always playing on one at, at, at all times. So, um, I highly recommend it. It sounds like Wes highly recommends it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I just wrote down Just Watch. I'm going to go check out, see what that's all about. I, I watched this on, um, I have Amazon Prime, and it was, yes. it, I did not, it was one of the films I did not have to, like, rent. It was just part of the Amazon Prime. So that was, uh, yeah, I like it when I don't have to rent. <laughs> one thing I didn't, I, I sort of forgot to mention in this before we close, um, the score is really, really cool. Uh, it's sort of like electronic, it's, but it's not synth music. It's it's like I don't even know how to describe it because I'm not um like up on what the current genres of music are. But this has such a a unique score to it. Like the the music is fantastic. I meant to go back and yeah explore more about the score as well. And and I'm with you. It, it had uh yeah it, it seemed to be a, a mixture of genres and. But the only thing I can't get out of my mind this week is brat, brat, brat. Yeah, I got that. And we used to do uh, <laughs> that's the sound of the police. Whoop, whoop. That's the sound that I miss when he's sitting in the hallway, like rapping to himself. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Brewis. Um, Brewis. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's uh, that song gets stuck in my head every time I watch yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, and those are all real songs like uh i looked them up and they weren't made for the movie they're actual like you know british uh hip-hop songs which is cool um and they're in their you know full songs that you can listen to but stephen price um that i mentioned earlier worked with i think uh, an artist named basement jacks and they uh they did all this music for the movie and i i actually i checked today while i was at work i was like oh i'm gonna listen to the score while i um work because i i tend to do that it's less distracting than than a podcast or something when i need to focus um and i i listen to the score all the time and it disappeared from spotify which bummed me out it used to be on there and hmm. i had i had some of the tracks on my uh halloween like i have this huge halloween playlist it's like 48 hours of music and i used to have uh some of the the cool songs from the end of the movie with the the big epic um like trumpets and stuff that they they add to the electric music but um Stephen mm. Price when I was looking through his like Spotify account I mean The World's End Gravity Fury Suicide Squad Baby Driver um Wonder Park and of course the new movie coming out in like 2 weeks um last night in Soho that I'm really stoked for um Oh yeah Edgar Wright is one of those directors for me that has yet to make a bad film um I love everything he's done. I, he's probably my favorite uh, modern director right now. Mm, uh, mm. I, I, ba- I mean, Baby Driver, so good. Uh, obviously, oh, yeah. you know, I feel like he's gotten better with each movie too. But I think Scott Pilgrim's probably my favorite. But it's, but when I remember, I, I think I saw this because Edgar Wright's name was attached to it, and I'm, I'm a big Edgar Wright fanboy. So I was like, oh, if he's a producer on this, I got to check it out. And uh, I'm so glad I did because I keep spreading the word of it. And uh, yeah, I, I just I love the music. I love the cinematography. Um, mm-hmm. Just a, a great film all around. Yeah, the, the, you mentioned the uh, Baby Driver. That's uh, a film that um, uh, my friend Dave Stuck, who owns uh, Radio Garage Productions, uh, when I was editing Wilt, uh, the opening of it, uh, we actually watched the uh, 
the beginning of Baby Driver several times to, to see how the editing and the music, the beats of the song, and how it matched with the movements of the car and the different things that they were doing. And because I want, and I didn't do, of course, a slick of a job as they did, but uh, that was what I was trying to do with uh, the opening of that film was, uh, yeah, these little beats hitting when the clip changes to another shot and something. And so, yeah, I, I'm all over that stuff. And Edgar Wright's awesome. I love it because uh, it's also interesting, like you talking about um, going back and reading these uh, playwrights and seeing, you know, what what they did right and what they did at the time. Um, Edgar Wright and and Tarantino, like two of our biggest names of of modern filmmaking, mm-hmm. they are students of film. Like you know, they can talk at length for hours about film. And and some people go after Tarantino for you know, oh, his films are just montages of other movies put together. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you can argue that whatever you want, but it's like two guys who just have a loving passion for film and and are sort of like human dictionaries uh, or encyclopedias on these um on film history i mean i feel like uh edgar's more of the the british film where you know uh tarantino's more of the u.s film but it's it's once again i mean they went they they go back through those and they find inspiration in and what's been made and to me it's like it makes a better film you know they they see they find what they love about film and they think okay what would i like to see in a movie and they make fantastic fucking movies i i love everything that both of them do so yeah, I can't argue with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I guess, one thing that really appeals to me about uh, being an artist. I mean, I think all artists, uh, you know, uh, are brilliant hacks. You know, we're one day away from being labeled either. And, um, but if you enjoy the process, if you enjoy the learning, and, and again, when I'm 99, I'll still be learning something about writing, filmmaking, acting, something I hope Hopefully, uh, I'll have all my uh, facilities. I'll still be doing something. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's all about loving the process. And if you're the if you're the type of actor who can go to twenty auditions in a row and hear no, well, then you're probably you're probably made out to be an actor. Uh, and uh, yeah, I same goes for uh, yeah, con- uh, continually being a student of a film and story and characters. And yeah, I, I, I could talk for three more hours with you about all that, but. Well, I, I think after you've seen my list, you know that you're going to have to come back because um, <laughs> I need you to help me check a few things off my list that, that um, you would okay. know better. Cause, uh, cause I, I, like I, my list is just overwhelming and uh, I know there's a few things on that list that you probably uh, love and are probably, um, wanting to hit me yes. over the head for not seeing. So, um, <laughs> where can my listeners find more about you? Where can they find your films? Um, if they want to check out some of your shorts or features, uh, where should I send them? Uh, I have, uh, uh I'm on Facebook and I, ha- I mean, I have my own personal page, uh, Wes Worthing, uh, but I also have one called Worthing's world, uh, where I, uh, specifically talk more about film and the, and the things I'm doing, uh, the projects. Uh, is through Worthing's World uh, Facebook page. And I'm on Instagram, but I'm only still, I know it's been around forever, but I'm still not really exploring that very much. i figuring that out. But um, uh, not on Twitter that I remember. If I am, I <laughs> certainly don't tweet. And um, yeah, that's probably it. 
<laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll make sure to include uh, Worthing's World in the show notes so people can check it out. Um, Thank you. Thank it's you. been so much fun talking about this movie with you. I, I knew it would be because um, you, you, your passion for all things film always shines through. And um, like I said, you're you're the biggest uh, sort of inspiration for a lot of people around around the Midwest and uh, beyond. Everyone that meets you has something nice to say about you, and uh, it's just great to have you on the show. I'm so, I'm so happy we finally had a chance to to chat, uh, you know, uh, significantly rather than within passing. And uh, I've always wanted to, and, and I, I I always geek out when I have an opportunity to break down a movie and you know, get into the ins and outs of it. And uh, yeah, love chatting with you, buddy. All right. Well, I guess that will be it until the next time when we watch something on my list. But um, again, thanks so much, Wes, and we'll talk to you next time. We'll see you around. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. A special thank you goes out to my friend Scott Schreiner for our intro and outro music. We'll see you next week on First Time Podcast.